I trust that you have enjoyed your breakfast. We certainly did. In fact, we're 20 minutes over time because we were enjoying our breakfast. Um, my name is Farida Fosdar. Um, I'm currently uh, acting head of school of uh, the School of Social Sciences here at UWA. And it's my pleasure this morning to be the moderator for our esteemed panel, um, who are looking at the topic towards 2028, big issues for women in the next decade. Um, and so thinking about um, what's, what's, what's happened kind of over the last few decades, I thought might be a useful way into thinking about uh, what are some of the issues that we're dealing with now and that might be the big issues for, for the next 10 years or so. So looking back, 1975, International Women's Year. Um, in that year also, we had the no-fault divorce, which had significant uh, positive effects for women. Uh, the first sex discrimination legislation was enacted in that year. And in that year, we also had the first women, uh, woman uh, cabinet minister. 1983, Australia signs the Convention to End Discrimination Against Women. 1990, um, our current staff member, Car Carmen Lawrence, becomes the first female state premier of Aus within Australia, the first one within Australia. Um, 1990, we also had the first female director of a national institution. 2003, the first indigenous woman to be made a minister. And in the same year, um, politicians, uh, one of uh, the women, woman politicians was ejected for breastfeeding in the lower house. Um, 2008, we had the first female governor general. 2010, first female prime minister. Of course, Israel had the fir their first female prime minister in 1969. Uh, Pakistan in 1988, Britain in 1979, Sri Lanka in 1960. Um, <coughs> in 2011, uh, gender restrictions on combat roles were removed. In 2012, we had the National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security, uh, which was launched. And basically, this was uh, an action plan um, that looked at what the country um, could do for women at home and overseas to integrate a gender perspective into its peace and security efforts, protect women and girls' human rights, and protect their participation in conflict uh, prevention, management, and resolution. 2012, we also had Julia Gillard's misogyny speech, memorable for uh, most of us, I, I would, would think. Uh, 2014, we had the second national plan to reduce violence against women and their children. And of course, more, more recently, we've had Rosie Batty, who have, has extended that project um, in her role as Australian of, of the Year. Um, so lots of positive things for women that have happened over the last few decades. But of course, we also um, have issues around the gender pay, pay gap, um, which I'll, I'll briefly uh, mention and our, our panel will also be talking about a little bit. Um, in measures, comparative measures sort of looking um, at Australia compared to the rest of the world, there's something called the global gender gap, which looks at a number of different measures, um, a combination of economic participation and opportunity for women compared to men, um, educational attainment for women compared to men, political empowerment and health and survival. And in this measure, Australia has been improving over the last decade or so, um, and is better than many other countries. But we're still um, at 0.74, uh, where one is gender equality between men and women. So we're about three quarters of the way there, basically. Um, gender pay, pay gap, um, which has already been mentioned, on average full-time women workers in Australia earn 15% uh, less than, um, than men. That's around $253 a week. Um, the base salary gap has increased in the last, um, sorry, the base salary gap has decreased in the last uh, five years after rising um, in the 10 years before that. And um, Western Australia has the highest gap at 22% 
compared to the rest of um, Australia. Um, some of you will have seen that last night uh, Energy Australia announced that it's eliminating the pay gap for its employees, which is a step in the right direction. Uh, but I think Chris will have something to say about, about that point as well. Um, we also have issues around domestic violence, as we know, and this is something which will, will come up. I, I won't talk uh, more about that. Now, at some point um, today, um, I'm going to ask a, a surprise question from some of those little tidbits of information that I've just given you. And the winner will receive um, a copy of the book. It's Nikki's, uh, Nikki's book, was it? Yeah. Yes. So, um, um, and Nikki, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that um, as part of the discussion. So without further ado, ado um, let's get cracking. And I'm not going to introduce each of the panelists. I will get them to introduce themselves. If you could just say for um, one or two minutes um, to, to talk about yourselves, um, starting with Alison. So my name's Alison Bartlett. Um, I work um, here at UWA in the beautiful building behind us in the School of Humanities. And I've worked uh, for the last 10 years in gender studies, so reading, you know, about uh, gender and social theory, and now I'm located in English and Cultural Studies. Thank you. It's Lindsay Warby. I'm from a Senior Assistant State Solicitor at the State Solicitor's Office. I've worked in government across WA and in Victoria for a period of time. I have recently come back from working for the Police Commissioner, which was a very educative process. And I'm also someone who's got a small child, and that has been informing my thinking about my role both in the workplace and at home in terms of educating a young, very young woman about what her opportunities are for the future, including having to advise her that women could also be captains and looking up lots of photos online to convince her that was true. So that's been quite educative from a very safe space from where I've worked in terms of gender equality to moving out into areas where there's a lot more work to be done. Uh, Chris Sutherland, uh, Managing Director of Program. Uh, programs are I guess a large staffing maintenance company. Uh, we've got about 25,000 employees working somewhere today and, and a few actually working on this campus as well where we, we do have some uh, work with UWA. I'm also uh, chair of a, a group of WA CEOs called um, CEOs for Gender Equity, whose, whose kind of vision is really is to, um, is to achieve equity in jobs and pay in Western Australia. And that was a group that was actually formed uh, a few years ago when the f one of the first Uyghur reports came out and uh, the then Equal Opportunity Commissioner called, uh, called a meeting of a few uh, male CEOs mainly uh, into a room and said, hey, what are you guys going to do about this? You know, uh, and so we got together and I guess for the first couple of years, I think we just, we just took initiatives within our own business. But the last couple of years now, we've really been driving forward to try to actually encourage other organisations uh, to take a whole range of actions that uh, many of the member organisations have taken. Um, we've got now 38 members of our group. Um, Dawn is also a member of our group, which is fantastic. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I've been uh, in looking in this space for a, quite a long time now, actually, certainly in our own organisation, and I believe I kind of do have a perspective, particularly, you know, what's actually happening on the shop floor. And I, I do think we tend to be in a bubble when we come to these kinds of events. But, you know, we, most of our people who do work in our firm, they're electricians, plumbers, painters, gardeners, all sorts of people across our firm. And I think that's where the real challenge is and, and the real debate that we need to have in society about what kind of society do we want to have. Hi everyone, my name's Dr Nikki Howe and I'm the CEO of Southcare, which is a aged care and community organisation. Uh, so I'm really interested in how we keep seniors in their own home and in their own community. 
probably like many of you in the room, I wear lots of hats. So I'm a mother, I'm a sister, um, I'm a dog lover, I'm a red wine drinker, I'm also a domestic goddess, and I'm really, really uh, passionate about how do we get um, diversity onto boards. And the book that was mentioned is a book called Difference Makers, and it's about how do we, as leaders, champion diversity on our boards. So, looking forward to a great conversation. Thanks, Nikki. And finally, Maria, and um, Dawn wanted to express her apologies that she skipped over Maria's name when introducing the speakers. No problem. Thank you very much. I'll remember that, Dawn. <laughs> Maria Saraceni, I practice as a barrister in regulatory compliance law. That is my full-time job, but I sit on six boards and committees, two statutory authorities, state government boards, one being the hospital boards for the North Area, for Sir Charles Gardner, etc and uh, four not-for-profit boards. Uh, apart from that, I was chair of the Women's Advisory Council for four years for the Minister, and what we did as one of our final things before the government disbanded, due to cost-cutting, uh, disbanded the council, is we put out a publication called Being Board Ready. So uh, giving women particularly um, a heads up about if you are interested in boards, these are some considerations you might like to have. It's not rah, 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 you're going to make a lot of money, it's fantastic. There are lots of liabilities, there are lots of issues, lots of responsibilities and liabilities, and that was, it's just a, an awakening and with a skills checklist type thing. And uh, otherwise, I'm having an International Women's Day party on Sunday, but <laughs> I'll speak to everyone about that later. Thank you. <laughs> I believe she's going to invite everybody. <laughs> Okay, so just to kind of get things rolling, thank you to, to our wonderful panel um, for those introductions. Um, just to get things um, rolling, I'd like to hear what you think are the biggest issues um, facing women over the next uh, decade or, to or so. Um, why is this a great time to be a woman? I'm particularly interested in Chris's views on that one. Um, why does uh, gender inequality um, and gender inequity continue to exist? And to what extent are initiatives such as um, International Women's Day um, uh, helpful for the cause of women? So um, each of you perhaps could say something about each of those. <laughs> okay, uh, I think, well, my perspective is uh, lots of the major issues for the next uh, decade, did you say, mm. or, or five, um, are social ones, so around climate change and poverty and you know, structural inequalities like racism, um, so uh, they're the focus that I um, tend to look at in, in my teaching and reading. And look, I think I'd say that it's all about perspective. Is it greater now than when we couldn't get divorced without showing cause? Frankly, I enjoy that thought quite often, probably too often. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got so many more opportunities. In my first workplace, which was only back in 98, um, there was a general rule that certain bosses liked women to wear skirts and not pants, and that was a very short period of time ago. Um, now I think we are in a lot better position, but will in 10 years' time my daughter be saying, oh, I can't believe you had to have Me Too and all those kind of movements. Will that be so far in the past that we'll have a new great and a new normal? And I think what I would hope for is, in some respects, the amount of energy we have to put into supporting other women to growing our own position in the workplace to provide more opportunities for ourselves and for other women 
it's a bit exhausting and in some respects I'd like to stop being exhausted by it in 10 years. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, firstly, I mean, I do, I do think uh, there has been change, right? But I'm probably feeling like that uh, change isn't fast enough. Mm. Um, that would be my personal point of view. I do think that the biggest issue I think women face <coughs> I think is this whole lack of financial independence, right? Um, I do think that if you know, one in two marriages fail, um, one in four women are subject to some form of domestic violence, right? Um, and a lot of women find themselves, um, I guess, stuck or staying in a dysfunctional relationship due to their own lack of financial independence, right? And I think that um, you know, that's actually why the gender pay gap, which is just the average pay between men and women in society, is so important. Um, so I really think that's something that uh, young girls need to understand. Um, you know, there's that phrase, you know, a man is not a financial plan. That's certainly what I've told my two daughters. Um, it means they <laughs> keep staying single, but, uh, um, but that's good. You know, I mean, I think that, uh, that I believe that's a very significant issue and I don't believe it's being tackled necessarily in the right way. And I don't believe that, I, th I think young girls when they're leaving school have this uh, ideal kind of view of the world that uh, everything's equal, everything's the same mm. and, uh, you know, girl power and we can do anything we want and then they quickly start adopting the same norms and behaviours and stereotypes as their mothers and their grandmothers. Mm. So reflecting on uh, what has changed, I was thinking about the <coughs> fact that in 1990 I was pregnant with my second son and I deliberately breathed in every time I got up from my desk because I knew that it was going to have an impact on my career. And I'm curious around how much um, the, the, the decision to have a family continues to have, means we've got to make a choice as a woman around uh, what impact that will have on our career. So um, I'm very much an optimist, but I do think that when I think about the next 10 years, what will change in that area? I think that the issue of boys' jobs and girls' jobs remain the same. And I think until we break that down and really start to challenge um, what jobs are actually about, I think that that's an important issue for us. And, you know, we can keep going on, but I'll make one other point. I think the ageing population is going to have a major impact on all of us. And dare I say, it's going to have a big impact on us as women because we are traditionally the carers. So in the next 10 years, I think that you know, cohort of older people coming through is going to have an, a major impact on us. I agree with all the other panellists. <laughs> the, <laughs> the United Nations this year has said for International Women's Day that the message is press for progress, as in let's move it. And some of the people have already heard me speak I find it uh, odd that in a hundred years the gay movement has gone from Oscar Wilde being jailed for buggery to the President of the United States, premiers, politicians, everybody's talking about it and gay marriage is allowed. That's a hundred years. Now it remains my view that if it was only the lesbians that movement would not have got where it is in this span of time. It is still gender warfare. There is no other way to, des to describe it and uh, that is just one thing. Um, as I mentioned, I'm having this party. Uh, oh, <laughs> last night I was, looking at, I was looking at decorations and I went on to Gumtree and Marketplace etc etc and what, I could, what could I buy? I could buy pink balloons for women, for girls, <laughs> and blue balloons for boys. 
So this is 2018, in the middle of the night when I was doing it as well, but the stereotypes continue and the media has a lot to do with it. But I think it's a great time for, for women um, to be a woman now, sorry Chris, is because we do have a voice, you need to make your voice heard and the small changes you make is what's important. You, can't, you don't get the women marching in the streets like they did in Tehran in 1979 when grandmothers were wearing miniskirts, people are grandmothers now, whereas the women in Tehran are all um, covered, modesty dress. But where are the women protesting now in the streets? So voices are important. Mm, okay. Big Thank women's marches <laughs> this year. Thousands and thousands, yeah. But also, if I can add yes. to that, I think there's a lot of um, action happening online rather than physically mm. outside in the streets. I mean, as well physically, I think, in the last year or two. But the online activism is where it's really coming from now, yeah. Thank you. Um, a few of our panellists, as, as part of their response to, to that question, um, talked about issues around um, caregiving. And of course, women traditionally have been caregivers for children, of course, but also for the elderly. And we talk about women now as the sandwich generation, where we're, we have responsibilities both for caring for young children, but also often um, grandparents are looking after um, young children as well, and mothers are looking after ageing aging parents. One of my colleagues, uh, Loretta Baldassar, does a lot of research in this area uh, as well. Um, so the question arises, to what extent is this inevitable? To what extent is women's position within society kind of determined by the fact that they are seen as the natural caregivers? And will that inevitably mean that socially, politically, economically, that women are at a disadvantage? And I would like to invite Alison to respond to that one. Thanks, Farida. Um, you know, I think we've heard some of that already on the panel, that it is a sort of watershed in a woman's life when you start having children. And, you know, we, we often think about this as work-life balance, you know, as dividing ourselves between work and life. But, you know, the truth is that many of us want to spend time with our children. It's a real pleasure. And, you know, it increases our life skills. Indeed, it increases our working skills. So it's a real enigma as to why it's still a barrier, you know, why, you know, we have to breathe in <laughs> and think about the repercussions for our working careers. Um, so I really think the key to this is about revaluing care. And I know there's been a lot of movement around this um, socially and theoretically, and especially around um, men's capacity and, you know, desire to, to do this caring as well. You know, when men do stay home and take, you know, paternity leave, it's always, you know, represented as such as a positive experience. And I think spreading it, spreading it around has got to be the key, not only to um, making it not just a, a women's issue, but to revaluing it and making it incorporated into, you know, workplaces or um, institutions that that care is something good to do. It's part of being a community, part of being social beings, that we care for each other. Thank you. Did anyone want to add anything? Uh, I was just going to add that, um, you know, to, to achieve a, you know, a gender-balanced organisation, I mean, you've got to look at all facets, and, and that particular facet around the, the system of work is all designed, it is designed around the way men want to currently work, right? And we have to change that. I do think there's a great opportunity because most young men that come into our organisation now actually do want to 
spend some time with their children. Um, and I think that is a generational change, you know. Um, and I think when I was born, I think my, you know, my father wasn't there at the birth, whereas when I was at the birth of my children, I'm talking, you know, there is, a, there is a generational change there. So I think that even just changing the whole array parental leave is thought about culturally, as well as actually technically works. Most, most even, I mean, most companies don't have any paid leave still, right? Small business, so right. Big corporations have all got normally 12, 14 weeks paid leave, has to be taken within 12 months of the birth or placement of the child. Um, guess what, so you're a male employee, uh, your partner has a child, she is naturally going to be the primary caregiver 99% of the time, potentially 80% of the time take that first 12 months off. So the system is designed even now such that there's not really an opportunity for a, for a man to even take that leave right. Um, so, you know, I, I, to be honest, I only figured that out uh, a month ago when we looked at our stats and we didn't actually have one man in a whole organisation take 12 weeks paid parental leave. They all take a week at the birth, but paid parental leave in the prior 12 months. And what we did was we said, well, let's say rather than have to do it within the first 12 months, you only have, you just have to start within 53 weeks. So, you know, in a normal, so in, in a family situation, if our, it's our male employee, if the mother has had the baby, has 12 months off, goes back to work, 60% of our employees, their partner also works, right? So that's another big thing, right? Uh, it allows the man to take that leave. So I just think there's lots of little technical things that can be fixed, and most organisations haven't got there yet. I, I do want to pick up on that point about revaluing care, and let me just give you a couple of numbers. So an electrician, which is traditionally, uh, we see men in, 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 as electricians, although I know we're trying to do something about that, probably get about $120 an hour. A carer in my organisation who's done a Cert 3 probably gets about $22 an hour. So the issue for me is what do we value in society? And I'm not saying we don't value safety and being an electrician, but when we talk about this notion of revaluing care, why do we always see that people who work in childcare, people who work in aged care are traditionally the lowest paid people? And who are those people? They are women. So we've got a major shift around how we actually value different types of trades and professions if we are to see that type of shift. And again, I guess from a legal perspective, there are some things that are written into the legislation which is side by side with now the Fair Work Act, for example, talks about uh, pay equality and we have pay equality. So the statement is um, there, but is it in fact what happens? But then when you look at other bits of legislation, for example, in Western Australia, sorry to be a little bit technical, but there is a point to this. Mm -hmm. um, there are laws in relation to minimum wages, so taking on from what you said, Nikki, minimum wages, etc., etc. Fantastic. So there's a minimum, no cap, and that's where a lot of the women get caught because employers say, well, I've got a discretion, so I'm, I, fa I value these things, and this is what I'm going to base pay on. So everyone gets the bottom, but the discretionary mm -hmm. element is different. But one of the things that's hidden in our West Australian Act, the Industrial Relations Act, is that you are exempt from minimum conditions, everything, if you do uh, domestic work in a private home. Now, that is one sentence hidden in everything that you need to look at. So 
That, together with the tax laws, in the old days, um, the husband could claim something for the spouse, and it was something like $2,000. Didn't actually represent the cost of getting that private domestic work done by someone else. So again, it is there are structures that are built in that perpetuate the, the discrimination. But the other thing, if I could say, is women are worse than men because women, as I find uh, in my personal experience, uh, discriminate against other women. Mm -hmm. I'm married, no children, so, you know, childcare means absolutely nothing to me. I needed, I needed aged care leave at work, no. My law firm thought, fantastic, we've now got, you know, baby leave for women. It's, like, it's not just for women. I thought you needed two people to have a baby. <laughs> and, but in any event, so, and then the aged care just doesn't even feature no, in, you know, domestic violence. And again, that's portraying women as victims. And I'm not suggesting domestic violence doesn't occur, but there are women who kill men in domestic situations, and it's very well reported. Poison works really well, I understand. I've always told that to my husband. But um, again, women with women, and f taking up your point, Chris, when there are fathers, as I understand from some of my friends who take time off and take the kids to school, etc., the women who are the majority of parents who drop the kids off and go and have morning tea afterwards, they never invite the guy. Not participating because it's still seen that this is not you, this should, you shouldn't be here. This is our domain. So again, you know, women can't have it always uh, I think just a, a quick answer around this issue of electricians versus carers right I think we, we just we, we'd like 46 percent of men and women in all occupations yeah. that'll actually solve that and will solve it from two ways I mean I don't think the men doing caring work are going to stay stay and uh, be quiet at $22 an hour wow. <laughs> um, I'm not hearing them raise their voices. No, but that's because there's not many of them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, all I'm meaning is, is that um, uh, I, I think that gender balance in those areas, and, and on, on the electrician side, if half of them were female, then you, you know, then there would be a, a more women who are earning higher than average income than there is now. But I do, I think that's the mm. point. We've got to get them in the different areas. Yep. We've mm. got to get males and females in different jobs, in different roles, to actually lobby for those changes. Mm. Mm. Okay, um, so moving along, um, there have been some really interesting discussions there about structural impediments to, um, to equality. Um, something that has been in the media over the last, I guess, couple of months um, has been to do with harassment in the workplace. Um, particularly this was started with the, the Harvey Weinstein um, case and you know, kind of the, the, the Me Too campaign, the Time, time, uh, time's Up um, campaign, etc., um, have raised awareness across all sectors. We've also had in the, within the university sector a report that has showed that around half of students have been subject to some form of um, harassment, um, sexual or otherwise. Um, so, uh, Lindsay, would, would you like to, to make some comments about the effects of um, this sort of harassment on, on women's uh, opportunities, um, as well as what we can kind of do about it? Certainly. And I, look, I think there's some real value in the Me Too and the Time's Up campaign. Um, but they, they brought brilliantly together the intersection of a, a really simple political message with celebrity um, and online activism and online opportunity where a lot of people are now living a good part of their social life through online forum. Uh, and I think the real challenge for those kind of movements and that kind of thinking is parlaying it into 
the real world. I don't know if, if Barnaby Joyce is our Time's Up Me Too moment. I don't know <laughs> if it all um, spread through, through politics and through, obviously we had Craig McLaughlin, but how do we take even bringing that message into Australia, how do we then take that into our own workplaces and into our own lives and turn that into something more than a catchy phrase and a lot of Kardashians. I think we need to ask ourselves, and if we start at a certain point, we can say that we've got a lot of law around this. We've got a lot of law that whilst it probably can be better, is still fairly high quality legal protection for women. Why aren't we using it as much as perhaps we, we could? What are the consequences of it? And, and how have perhaps some of us found ways to deal with harassment that are indirect and that's something that I think we do a lot of. We do a lot of avoiding or polite responses um, and I think the, uh, the question is how do we bond together and actually take on that harassment because it stopped being quite so obvious. It's no longer that 70s, well actually before I've just been working at police so let's not make that quite so specific. <laughs> um, it's not quite as, as overt as it used to be. It's not quite as, it's become more in, in many respects insidious. So it's underlying and how do we join together, not just women, with men, so I'm always going to point to you when we talk about men, um, how do we join together to recreate our workplace in a way that we don't have to think about, that we don't have to worry about it. It's not everyone, it's not common anymore, it's insidious, it's individuals but they're still allowed to flourish and I think Me Too reminded us we needed to call that out a little bit more. Um, and how do we parlay that into real change? And I'm not sure I have a great answer to that, but I think that's the real question. That's all right. And we'll spend uh, a few minutes to, towards the end asking each of the panellists what they think the directions are that we could take in, in the future to Im improve things more generally. But for now I want to move on to the, the, the point that uh, our Vice-Chancellor actually mentioned this morning um, about STEM disciplines, the fact that um, women are concentrated in certain vocational areas, which uh, Chris has already uh, mentioned, a number of panellists have talked about, um, and are missing from, um, from other areas. Um, a number of organisations, including the university, are, are trying to um, encourage women into non-traditional professions. Um, and Chris's organisation works in, in trying to encourage women into CEO uh, positions as well. So Chris, would you, would you like to say a few words about that yeah, question? Well, and I think I, I come at it from two levels. I mean, firstly, um, you know, if, if, if you looked at the, the skill sets of the people that have the, the operational line roles in, in major companies in Western Australia, I mean, you, you see strong mathematical, analytical kind of problem-solving skills, and largely that's what maths and science kind of disciplines, I think, gives you, right? And certainly uh, Western Australia is probably a bit stronger than, than the national average because I've, I've kind of done my own anecdotal thing of a... You know, if you look at Peter Coleman running Woodside, or you, know, you go through all these other companies. I mean, they're engineers, or they're people that have a Bachelor of Science and something else they've added to it, right? So I do think that um, when, you, when you start thinking about uh, gender diversity of CEOs, right, then you've got to actually go all the way back to, okay, so what's the current cohort look like? So year 12 this year, right, uh, in Western Australia, um, about, uh, about 1,800 boys doing specialist maths, about 800, 900 girls, right? So already, it's already skewed. So in other words, uh, we won't have solved the problem in 30 years' time. I mean, that's, it's already built in. It's locked in, it's loaded, right? Um, so I do think that uh, 
you know, we need to do more about having gender balance in, in, in all subject areas, you know. We need more men doing teaching as well, so, and we need more men doing nursing. So, uh, but we need more girls doing that. Why can't, why can't each classroom look like society? That's what you really got to aim for, I think. Right? So that's, that's one aspect. The other aspect that I think gets missing, and this is what I always often talk about, for me, particularly maths, is a life school, and I actually personally think it's a more important school than English, right? And now some might disagree with me on that. I'm looking at a few frowned faces there, right? My point is this is that, you know, every, every 15 year old kid now has a superannuation account, right? right? And I go right through this whole idea of this lack of financial independence, right? You know, um, and I do believe problem solving analytical skills is, is, is part of having a, a successful life, and success not necessarily measured on income measured on a whole range of things, right? You've got to be able to get through life, solve problems, and those analytical skills are, are, are deep and core to a person's ability to do that, right? And again, the way our system is at the moment, right? So I've talked about at the top end. At the bottom end, right, you have a lot more girls who do no maths after year 10 than boys. Right? No maths at all. Um, so, you know, I think that they're already on a pathway, statistically, right? I'm not saying it happens around, but statistically, they're on a pathway to, move, to be more likely than average to be stuck in a dysfunctional relationship because they can't problem solve, they, have, they lack their own financial independence in schools. So I just think that... <laughs> <laughs> so I just think that, um, you know, we have to think, think about that. And uh, certainly I know, um, you know, my... Well, I've got four kids, I've got two boys and two girls, and, you know, and I've, I've talked about this before. My, my experience of the two girls with the two boys are dramatically different, right? And we're not talking about 20 years ago, we're talking about, you know, they're, they're 23 now, my girls, right? So they've gone through the system, one graduated here, one graduated at Melbourne University, right? But certainly, even at, at when they're in year 10, looking at their subjects, we had to have a parent-teacher meeting to discuss, you know, what specialist maths was like and how hard it could be, right? At the boys, where the boys were, no one ever said that, right? And even that year, right, in 2000, this is 2010, right? Um, I know where the boys were, uh, I've got two boys, there was 38 boys doing specialist maths out of 200, and where the girls were, there was 11, right? Including my two, so. But I, I, ju I just think that um, uh, it's, it's not just about a STEM career, it's about having a life school, and it's not about saying, doing specialist maths, most girls are opting out to do maths at a lower level than they could easily could achieve, right? They, they're just as good as the boys in year five. In year nine, they're just as good. But if you surveyed 100 girls and 100 boys, all 100 girls would say maths is hard, even the ones that do it very well. But somehow, they've been told it's hard, and therefore they opt out. So. Thank, thank, thanks, Chris. Um, can I also invite uh, Nikki to, to we, we only have a few minutes left because we do want to open it up for a bit of discussion from the floor. Um, uh, Nikki also um, has done work on, on the importance of um, having women in senior executive uh, roles, so we'd like to hear a few words from yeah, you. Yes, so look, I'll give us some maths. Um, <laughs> let's start with some facts, some, yeah. some catalyst research found. So this is particularly about women on boards that uh, women on boards increase the return on equity by 53%, they increase the return on sales by 43% and they t uh, increase the return on capital by 66%. So there is this really strong economic argument as to why women should be on boards. But it's almost like that sometimes is not heard because we only need to see um, 
this target that's been set about getting 30% of women on boards and how we're actually not meeting that target. So then I think, well, what are the things that women bring to a board? And, you know, at some level here, of course, I'm speaking to the converted, aren't I? But let me, um, let me just highlight these points so that we can take them away and remind people that um, having a woman on a board reflects the marketplace. It obviously builds brand and reputation. And I really invite us to think about, well, where do we buy and who do we buy from? Um, it increases innovation, it reduces conflict, um, it improves decision making and it gives a different perspective. And we only need to think about those organisations like Enron, Lehman Brothers and James Hardy and look at the actual makeup of those boards and see, well, yeah, there was a fair bit of groupthink going on there, wasn't there? So I know and a lot of testosterone. Um, another, another quick number and then I'll be quiet. Um, this whole issue around women in leadership positions, so based on 10 years of research that was done by the, so the Committee of Perth um, have got a report called Filling the Pool, are you all familiar with that? Great, well let's just uh, remind ourselves that is, there's an estimated loss of 20% of GDP, which is an annual loss of approximately 300 billion to Australia because women are excluded from being in those senior positions. You think about the impact that has in terms of a loss of revenue for services, for infrastructure, you know, health, aged care, do I say it again? And so, you know, there's a real strong economic argument, but there's also a real strong argument around the different qualities that we bring both to the executive and to boards. So I really encourage you ladies uh, to step up into those positions because we need you. Thanks, Nikki. And finally, um, Maria, would you like to comment on um, the extent to which women are complicit in perpetuating the status quo and what women can actually do to, to challenge um, you know, some, of the, some of the issues we've talked about this morning? I think small steps is the way to go. What difference can you make in your day-to-day -day life? So people you meet, you see, you hear, you sit in a board meeting, comments are made about we need a new executive director for the hospital. Uh, you know, as a board member, I'm able to make some comments about what I'd like to see. And it's, it's that sort of thing that I think is really important. So the thing with the balloons in the middle of the night that, that I saw, I really got upset about it. But what do you do? Who do you complain to? Uh, in England, uh, actually, when the boy-girl colours came out, boys go to pink, not blue. The girls go to blue. And if you look in sort of the more traditional sort of Arabic sense, the men are in white, not the women, and the women are in black. So for some reason, start making changes to, uh, in your family uh, and to people that you know. So next time you go to a birthday party of your two-year-old grandson, you know, think about what you're going to buy or give or say because it's those gestures there that start making a difference. Um, the other thing I think is the media. Media has a lot to answer for. So the Me Too campaign in Hollywood, uh, yes, it's got all the glitz, etc., etc. but if that's what it takes for people to stop and hear something, make something, uh, different, uh, dif approach things differently and hopefully the media differently is important. I mean, I catch a bus to work when I don't walk to work. I don't possess a car. But anyhow, by the way, I'm standing at a bus stop, dressed in a suit. I'm about to go to work, give advice to, you know, 
people, companies, then go to court, and yet the sign that is on the bus stop that I have to stand at and look at is this scantily clad woman trying to sell, I don't even know what she's trying to sell because <laughs> I try not to look anymore. <laughs> or you walk through, as I did just recently, David Jones, I had some vouchers. You have to walk through all the makeup. Mm. I mean, seriously? And why is advertising being pushed on women that you've made it if you've got a Hermes handbag or you have, you know, the Louboutin shoes, etc., etc. And so economic independence is important, but with money that women have, what do they do with it? And is it the best use of it? You know, how much does it cost me to go to a hairdresser as opposed to you, Chris? It's a bit longer, but... I know the answer to that. There are... There are 10%. There are small things that change can be made. So what difference can you make? Thank you. And yeah, I'd yeah. also like to hear um, Alison's perspective on, on that question of, you know, to what extent yeah. are we as agents, can we change things? To what extent is it structures? What can we do? Yeah, well, I think small steps, you know, creating change in your own environment is yeah. all we can do. But I'm really, um, I really notice the structural uh, power inequities which also need to change which, you know, I mean, what we've been talking about basically is capitalism <laughs> today and how, you know, our lives are structured around this, you know, seeking greater prestige and greater, um, you know, wages, you know, more, you know, the traditional um, jobs um, ha have all that. So, so, you know, I'm not sure, I mean, we, so we need structural change where there aren't power inequities around, um, you know, around things like gender, but also age, sexuality, race, class, all sorts of things, that, how they're all intersected. And I guess that's uh, more of a challenge to think about, but also important uh, when we think about, you know, our capacity to act and also uh, forming bonds with other people that, you know, are like us. I mean, that's one of the reasons why these breakfasts you know, and talking to each other is so important, but also talking to people that we're not likely, you know, we wouldn't normally go and talk to, yeah. So I think it's really important to challenge those structures and, and also just to recognise them, just to recognise them is um, important as well. Thanks, Alison. Um, and I know Alison has to um, run off and, and teach uh, shortly, so <laughs> if you see her shoot out, that's, yeah. that's what she's doing. I've always thought that one of the solutions would be to make all jobs half-time um, and then you know men would do a half-time job and women would do a half-time job and pay equity would work itself out but you know you can't I, I don't know whether you can legislate that all jobs <laughs> should be half-time but anyway um, okay so we have just maybe three minutes for some questions from the floor and then we have uh, Lucy to to sum up um, questions or, or comments um, so uh, with the red shirt first thank you Hi, um, my name's Rebecca White. I'm from the Economic Regulation Authority. Um, I'm interested in the discussion about maths <laughs> um, and why we're being told that to make it to the top, that's something that's important. Um, we've already kind of touched on that women do make good leaders, um, good interpersonal skills, all those type of things that a leader actually needs. Um, and in some ways, actually getting your hands out of the nitty gritty detail when you're at the top is a good thing. So why is it that maths actually is a big deal? And why is it not the soft skills that women are naturally good at that should be embraced and we're looking at the things that maybe we're not good at? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> well, 
mean, clearly, I think to be a, a very good manager, you, you need to be very rounded, right? There's no doubt about that. But my point is, is that um, I mean, a lot of a lot of the work is really uh, you're looking at a lot of a lot of information, right? And problems, in a sense, problem solving, you know. And I, I think that um, a skill set of someone uh, that has gone through, you know, the kind of scientific processes of, you know, of research and, 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 and looking at information, hypothesizing about, you know, what's, what's the right path forward, creating some different scenarios and then coming to an answer is actually, it's kind of what, what, I, what I do uh, every day. That's the way I think about it, right? So, can uh, I say? Equally, can I the other thing I'll say is that equally right, running a business right, um, I mean, I'm talking about business, so I'm not talking about um, in other, other areas in a sense, right? I mean, it is, a, it is about, um, you know, uh, 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 earning enough sales to meet all your expenses and hopefully being able to pay the bills at the end of the day. So, so you, you have to know all those levers. <laughs> Can, can I invite Lindsay to, uh, yeah, to look somebody who's trained in law and arts, mm. I believe? I was about to say, and I um, am trained in law and arts, and so you would think I would come from a different perspective, and yet I did my degree off the back of my maths, my high-level maths numbers, not off my English lit. Um, I had to relearn that a bit more at university. It is the analytical thinking that you need in any environment, and, and whilst I appreciate there's often a thought that women are naturally good in certain skills, and there's a question mark about whether we're trained up from a very early age to be good at that or whether it's something a bit more innate. My daughter's definitely not good at it. Um, there is a, a capacity that the analytical comes from the problem solving in math that you then take in. And even if it's not something that you feel naturally comfortable with as a person, whether you're a man or a woman, it brings a different skill in the same way that we try and teach people who are naturally better at that analytical skill to learn how to communicate what they've worked out through analysis. So it is about that well-rounded and whether you agree with it or not, I think the statistics do bear out that there is a correlation, why ever that's come about, between that senior math and that success at career levels in a lot of areas. Can I just, sorry, just say one thing? Even when, like, so our apprentice painter, right, the, I'll call him a kid, male or female, right, uh, if he or she has some mathematical ability, you know what happens to them? Quickly, right? They're involved. They're better at estimating work, mm -hmm. measuring sites, um, pricing work. All of a sudden, they're, they're managing an account. Then they are. They will probably be earning double the income in our business to to the painter that doesn't have those skills. Now, it's not to say that's bad outcomes. Well, I'm just just making mm -hmm. the obvious point, right? That that that's kind of how business works. Mm -hmm. You've. You, Okay, I'm sorry that we're actually going to have to, um, to wrap it up there, but hopefully people will have the opportunity to stay and have a chat um, afterwards. But I do want to try to finish by nine because I know some people need to leave. Um, so to um, make some uh, closing remarks, we have Lucy Moyle, who um, is graduating on Saturday, right? <laughs> so um, one of our newest alumni. Thank you. <laughs> Good morning everyone, um, my name is Lucy and I'm pleased to be able to follow on from our enlightening panel and conclude our breakfast on this International Women's Day held on Wajak Noongar land. Um, so I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. 
So our panellists have today painted a picture of the evolution of our perception of women in the world around us in the political, economic um, and cultural contexts. And it's clear that we've come pretty far, which is exciting, which is nice. Um, so particularly within the framework of workplace diversity and, and inclusion, we do have more secure secure equal opportunity and harassment laws um, and we see we've seen a greater commitment from firms in achieving pay parity and workplace diversity um, we see bhp wanting half of its workforce to um, comprise women by 2025 you know chris has worked to achieve a more um, equal parental leave scheme programmed um, and a whopping 11,000 employers supported wgea's gender pay gap report 2016-2017 um, through the provision of data to make real change. Um, a lot has changed since my grandmother had to leave her post as a teacher in the State Education Department when she got married in 1963. <laughs> uh, because of this progress, I, along with my classmates and entry-level colleagues, do remain optimistic and motivated to continue the work that our mothers and grandmothers have done before us. But there is a lot more work to be done. At current rates, the analysis suggesting that we won't reach gender pay parity for another 100 years is pretty incomprehensible. Um, it will be my great-granddaughter or great-great-granddaughter um, who will reach that equal playing field, and I can't really wait that long. Uh, specific strategies focusing on the advancement of women also need to be accelerated, so we have a strong male and female leadership balance. We also need to continue to develop the culture of embracing work practices that ensure all members of the community have an equal participation in work and eliminate unre unreasonable gender stereotypes. So it's pretty much because of these, this combination of reasons that I founded Unlimited Women in 2017, an organisation with a focus on supporting the career development and advancement of my generation from university into industry. Our events, initiatives and online resources are intended to ease the transition for young women and provide them with a set of skills to enter and thrive in the workplace. At our core is our one-on-one -on -one mentoring program which connects top talent and driven women with female leaders across industries in Perth. Um, last year we facilitated the relationship of 52 participants and to great success. Um, over half of our mentees secured vacation or graduate work in their chosen field, um, but everyone said that having a mentor helped to provide clarity on their future career pathway. Uh, we're expanding at a rapid rate and in 2018 plan to support 40 mentoring pairs through this unique program. So if Unlimited or being a mentor speaks to you, um, come and find me afterwards as we'd love to have you involved in the program. Finally, um, thank you to UWA alumni, to the University Club, everyone else for putting this event together and for everyone who's attended this morning um, to ensure that we continue the conversation about gender equality moving forward. Um, it is crucial that we have these conversations and we continue to act as we haven't worked this hard to preserve the status quo. So thank you, have a lovely morning and come and have a chat to us afterwards. Thank you. Thank you.